fortresses that we have to deal with in warfare. They are speculations. They are thoughts, ideologies, false religious beliefs, rationalizations, philosophical notions, uh, psychological arguments that exalt themselves against the true knowledge of God. It's the mind he's talking about. In other words, these fortresses are the proud reasonings and intellectual arguments of unregenerate man that are opposed to the truths of the Word of God. That is exactly what Paul's talking about. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our present study is about hindrances to the gospel as we study chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. We are in a spiritual war, and there is a lot of opposition to the gospel. So let's get started with today's training. Here's Pastor Steve. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to continue our study of this marvelous book and this marvelous passage that we find ourselves in, in which Paul is speaking about himself and defending that he is a true and valid servant of Christ. And in light of all that, I want to say as we start that one of the great paradoxes of life is that godly leaders are both deeply loved and deeply hated at the same time. It is a great paradox. And nobody experienced this puzzling oddity more than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. On the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, at Palm Sunday, he was hailed and praised by his disciples as the king who had come to deliver his people. They, they said, Hosanna, save now. They recognized that he was the fulfillment of what Zechariah said, that he would come lowly and humble and riding on a donkey into the city. But it's interesting, at the very same time, his disciples were praising him. The Bible tells us in Luke 19:47 that the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Now think about that. Deep love, hailing him as the wonderful king who had come to save his people, and deep hatred so that you have some men huddled over here in the corner trying to figure out how to kill him. That, that is a paradox. No one has ever been more loved and more despised at the same time than Jesus Christ. His true followers love him as the incomparable Lord and Savior. To them, he is beloved. He is a priceless treasure. He, he is dear and precious. But unbelievers despise him. Nobody is neutral about Christ. Unbelievers despise him. And why do they detest him so? Well, Jesus said it himself in John 7, 7. He said, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. In other words, unbelievers hate Christ because he tells them the truth about themselves. He tells them that they are sinners. He tells them they're unrighteous and they don't want to hear it. So instead of repenting, Instead of responding to that in repentance, they, they lash out in anger and hostility towards the one who's told them the truth about themselves. And although Jesus is the ultimate object of love and hatred, I want you to understand that every Christian leader, every Christian leader to some degree experiences the same paradox of ministry in which he's both loved and he is Hated. After all, Jesus said, if they treat the master this way, then don't be surprised if they treat his servants this way. 
Some people have the deepest affection for the man who ministers to them and others can't stand him and they and they want nothing to do with him and have only contempt for him and what he stands for. And I think that the greatest example of this in terms of a, of a human minister of the gospel is the Apostle Paul. Nobody apart from Jesus experienced such a contrast of hatred and love directed at one person other than Paul. And the verses that so clearly illustrate this is what our study is going to be this morning, Second Corinthians chapter 6. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been involved in looking at Paul's life. And uh, we've looked at it from the standpoint of Paul presenting himself as a genuine servant of Christ. He said in verse 4 of chapter 6, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships in distresses. Now, why did Paul do this? Why was it so important for him to convey and commend himself that he was a genuine servant? Because in verse 3, he explained that his desire was to make sure that his life did not disgrace the ministry. He said in verse 3, going back one verse, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Paul didn't want anybody looking at his life saying, well, what a joke. He says one thing, but he lives another way. He he he, pre- he preaches this, but he practices this. And so Paul goes through a rather lengthy list of the various trials and sufferings and heartaches that he experienced in the cause of Christ And his purpose in doing this was to prove to the Corinthians that he was a true and genuine apostle and servant of Christ. And the way he does this, the way he proves it is by revealing that though he suffered greatly, and I don't think any one of us can really relate to what Paul went through, yet he did not quit and renounce Christ. He endured. He says that in verse 4, in much endurance. His endurance, his perseverance, his persistency, his spiritual stamina revealed that he was not a self-seeking, self-willed individual. He was not a phony. He was a genuine servant of Christ. And his point is this. And if you get this, you sort of get the whole gist of it. His point is this. Who in his right mind would go through all of this and keep coming back for more if he wasn't a servant of Christ? Who would possibly endure all of this and keep coming back and keep getting hit and beat and all of these things happening unless there was a reality to Jesus Christ Then I was his true servant? So that's his that's his purpose to say in the midst of all of these trials, I, I did even as the choir sang, he, he plotted on, he persevered, he ran the race. And then he adds in verse six that not only did he endure his trials, but he endured them with godly behavior. He, he didn't just have stamina, but he endured with godliness. He says in verse 6, in purity and knowledge, in patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in genuine love. Uh, Paul had victory. Paul did not use his trials or his lack of sleep or good nourishment as an excuse for poor behavior. But the question is, and we raised this last week, how did he do this? How did Paul do this? How could one man suffer so much and yet respond in such a godly manner? Well, the answer is found in verse seven, because Paul in that verse reveals three spiritual resources that God had provided to enable him to endure It's the same resources you and I have. This is what keeps us going. At least these are three of the things that keep us going. And we saw the first one was he says in verse seven in the word of truth. That is to say, Paul is telling us he endured all kinds of uncomfortable situations in 
the, the word of the gospel. He, he stuck with the gospel. He endured it all by sticking with the truths of the gospel. His course was set for him. He spoke the truth of the gospel to people, whether they agreed with him or not. Paul didn't have to wonder about uh, what was he going to say, about his opinions, any of this. His commitment to the gospel helped him to, to endure because he knew that regardless of the opposition that he faced, he still had the truth. He had the truth. He had the answer to man's sin problem. No matter what form the opposition took, he knew he had the only message of life. And folks, that's what encourages us. That's what strengthens us. That's what enables us to endure, because no matter what people say about the gospel, no matter what they say about us, the truth is, is that we have the truth. And so we give the truth and we we give it in love. And so that's what Paul said. The second spiritual resource that enabled him to endure, he says, was in the power of God. That is to say that not only did he have the truth of the gospel to share, but he shared it as a weak vessel, knowing that God was going to take his word and, and apply it and use it to save and transform lives. Paul didn't think that it was his job to do it. He didn't think that it was uh, his responsibility to save anybody or to make sure that he was clever in his presentation and he had some spiffy eloquence and all that. No, he understood that that it was God who was going to do it. His confidence was in God. And that's a that's a great encouragement. What an what an enablement he endured knowing that it wasn't up to him. It was God and God works through weak vessels. So Paul endured all kinds of hostilities by number one, preaching the one message that saves people. And number two, by doing it with confidence in God's power to change lives. These are the means that we endure as well. We aren't called upon, as I said a moment ago, to be clever in giving people our own opinions. Just stick with the truth. Just give them the gospel. And we are not called upon to save anybody or to change their lives. It is God's power at work to do that. It's what Zechariah said in the Old Testament, not by might nor by our strength, but by his power, says the Lord of hosts. It's not us. It's him. We just need to be faithful to the gospel and to be humble so that God can work through us as weak vessels. Now, we want to discover the third resource that God has provided to enable us to endure these trials and difficulties in serving him. And then we'll begin and just begin to look at some of the paradoxes in Paul's ministry as he's going to tell us about another trial. People misjudged him. People misevaluated him. People loved as well as hated him. So let's let's continue by looking where we left off last week at the end of verse seven, as we look at the third spiritual resource that enabled Paul to endure. He writes in verse seven, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Now, with these words, Paul does something and done before. He introduces a military metaphor, a military metaphor. He informs us that God has provided us with righteous weapons for the battles that we're engaged in, specifically in serving him. This is not the only time in scripture that Paul compares the Christian life to warfare. In fact, it is a reoccurring uh, metaphor that he uses. For example, to the Thessalonians, in perhaps his first letter, his first letter written in the New Testament, he said in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Later, while under arrest in Rome and chained to a Roman soldier, Paul will write the Ephesians at this point in Second Corinthians. He had not written them yet, but he will write the Ephesians and tell them that God has provided spiritual armor that compares precisely to each piece of physical armor worn by a Roman soldier. Let's look at that. Ephesians chapter six. 
Many believe that that when Paul wrote this, or at least it's suggested that Paul may very well have been looking at the soldier chained to him and writing down about every piece of armor that this physical soldier had and saying, hey, we have a spiritual armor. If it wasn't like that exactly where he was looking and writing, uh, it certainly was in that arena. He certainly got some of those thoughts from the Roman soldier. He says in verse 10 of Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Notice it's his might. Now, how do you how do you get strong in his might? Well, he tells us in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. And I'd underline that word, at least in your minds, full armor. Those words, full armor, complete armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not really against another human. It may look like that, but it's not. He said, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, Satan has a hierarchy of demons, and that's who the battle is really against, Satan and his cohorts. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The evil day is not one day in the future. It means any day that Satan attacks you. You may be going through satanic assaults right now. You may be going through a very, very difficult time that is really a satanic assault on you. And what Paul is teaching here is make sure that you have all of the spiritual armor that God has provided, appropriated. Get dressed in the morning like you're going to war because you are. You're in a battle. And the thought here in the imagery is that you cannot stop these assaults from coming. All you can do is make sure that you're covered uh, and you're protected the way God intended you to be protected. And after the attacks, when the dust settles, you're still standing. You're not defeated. You're still standing because you have the whole armor of God. Now, that's the message of Ephesians 6. And we're, we're all involved in that. But as you go back to 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is not referring in this chapter to the general warfare that all believers face in the Christian life. What he is talking about, the context tells us, is his ministry, his ministry, not general warfare, but his ministry. He is referring to the spiritual battles that ministers, Christian leaders are engaged in as they serve Jesus Christ. And by using the expression weapons of righteousness, the apostles revealing that there were some tough battles, some tough conflicts that he was involved in. He faced in his ministry some very tough, tough situations. And the way he fought those battles, the way he dealt with them, was by using the weapons of righteousness which God had provided. Now, the question, in order to interpret this correctly, we need to ask and answer is, uh, what are those weapons of righteousness? What, what exactly has God provided? And you know what? Paul doesn't tell us here. He does not tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 what they are. But we're not left to to our own guesses about that. You know why? Because in chapter 10, he does tell us about it. We haven't studied that yet, but we're going to turn to it now. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through five. Remember, Paul understood that the Corinthians would read this letter at one sitting. They would go back and study it more closely perhaps not taking two years like we are, but they would indeed be studying it. And uh, But when they first got it, they'd read it through and they would have known just a few chapters later what the weapons of uh, warfare of righteous weapons he's talking about. Beginning in verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, not meaning, by the way, that he's carnal. 
He means here by flesh, though, though we walk as human beings, we walk physically. He said, I want you to know though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't use human devices in spiritual warfare. He explains, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human devices. But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, these are tremendously important verses because they reveal to us the true nature of the conflict that that all Christians to to some degree are involved in, but especially Christian leaders and ministers or anybody who has any kind of a ministry involving the word. Paul reveals in verse four that men, he says, have established fortresses and your translations may say strongholds. It's, it's the same same thought. These fortresses, these strongholds have to be destroyed. Now, what is a fortress? What is a, a stronghold? Well, the imagery here is that of a, a fortress in an ancient city that residents could take refuge in. And when they were under attack, they, they just go to the highest part of the, the, the city and, and go in that fortress. That's that's what he's talking about. That's the imagery. They had it at Corinth. They had it in every ancient city. Now, he tells us that um, individuals, unregenerate man has fortresses, strongholds. What are the fortresses that unbelievers take refuge in? Well, he tells us in verse five. Let me read it again. Right after telling us that uh, we need to destroy fortresses, he tells us in verse five, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What are the fortresses that we have to deal with in warfare? They are speculations. They are thoughts, ideologies, false religious beliefs, rationalizations, philosophical notions, uh, psychological arguments that exalt themselves against the true knowledge of God. It's the mind he's talking about. In other words, these fortresses are the proud reasonings and intellectual arguments of unregenerate man that are opposed to the truths of the word of God. That is exactly what Paul's talking about. Philip Hughes, in his excellent commentary in 2 Corinthians, has this to say about what Paul is teaching us here. He writes, the Christian warfare is aimed at the casting down of the reasonings and rationalizations of self-centered man which are the strongholds whereby the unbelieving mind seeks to fortify itself against the truths of human depravity and divine grace. And at the casting down also of every proud bulwark raised up against the knowledge of God. End of quote. See, the the battle for the souls of men is a battle dealing with thoughts and ideas. That's what it's about. That's the real spiritual warfare today. This is the realm that Satan operates in. He targets our minds. And I, and I think he loves it when people are chasing around demons and trying to cast out demons and send them here and send them there and claiming the blood. Because they're missing the point. They're missing the point. The battle is over the minds of men. The issue is what people are thinking. And the warfare Paul engaged in involved overthrowing and casting down the false arguments of the unsaved, whether they be Jewish legalists or pagan idol worshipers. That's why at the end of verse five, notice again, Paul states we are taking here's his goal in doing all this. We are taking every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we counter men's rebellious arguments by winning them and their thoughts to Jesus Christ. Instead of rebelling with rationalizations against the truth, we want to win them and bring those thoughts into captivity to God's divine revelation. Now, how did he do this? How did he do this? Well, that's what he's talking about. He used the weapons God provided for him. This warfare, these are the righteous weapons. Notice verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human devices. And let me just stop here for a moment and say that Paul did not counter speculative thoughts by using human devices, human arguments, wisdom, clever methods. That is a tremendously important thing that we understand in our day and age because the typical evangelical church today, certainly in the United States, is absolutely impotent to deal with error because they use human devices to try to win people to Christ and to the cause. That's part of the whole problem with user-friendly churches or creating a certain crowd uh, dynamic or bringing in a speaker with great eloquence and charisma, thinking that people will will relate to that or using psychology to 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 win people in the arena of their own culture. And let's see how we can we can be like them and relate to them and have them feel comfortable with us. Paul didn't use any of that. None of that. He wasn't interested in methodologies and church growth techniques and things like that. Paul said he would not use any human device to destroy error. What's the only thing that you meet head on with error? You give them the truth. You give them the truth. That's what he means in verse 4. He said the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We're not using any kind of that stuff. But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What is the one thing that you can use to destroy speculation and error? You use the truths of God's word. That's that's precisely what he's talking about here. He used the only spiritual weapon that can defeat satanic falsehood, and that is the word of God. The righteous weapons that Paul's referring to, as you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the righteous weapons that enable Paul to endure all kinds of conflicts in ministry were the individual truths of Scripture. That's That's what he's talking about. When Paul encountered error, that exalted itself against God's revelation, he used the sword of the Spirit, which he tells us in Ephesians 6.17, is the Word of God. By the way, the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17 is the only weapon that Paul spoke of that was offensive. Everything else is defensive. A helmet, a breastplate, uh, even the shoes were somewhat defensive. Everything is defensive except the sword of the Spirit, which you thrust forth to make a point, to fight folly. This is the weapon God provided for him to use in every difficult situation in which men and women oppose the gospel. Notice the end of verse 7. You'll see the emphasis here is in every difficult situation. It is totally sufficient. He says at the end of verse 7, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left hand. What does he mean? In other words, he was equipped with the word of God to meet error from any direction, whether it came from this direction or from that direction. He was equipped with the word of God which is what Paul taught Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness and then he added that the man of God meaning the man of God who uses the word is completely furnished for every good deed it's sufficient it deals with error it is the righteous weapon 
The scriptures are essential reading for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. They are the means by which he leads us, and we need them if we don't want to become hindrances to others trusting in Christ. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. I'm glad you could join us. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit Lakeside sometime, the address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. Find out more by calling the office at 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. Find out more about Verse by Verse at our website, versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. I hope you'll be here for the next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve gives us some biblical insights on dealing with people who are imprisoned in fortresses of falsehood. Falsehood.